After the sermon, we will respond, singing of hymn 42, all six stanzas. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, have you ever been deeply disappointed in someone whom you held in high regard for a long time and who did something unthinkable? You never imagined that this person would do such a thing. He or she got caught in some secret sin and afterwards turned his or her back on the church and family and everything they had ever stood for. It happens. Also in the church, elders, ministers, or professors of theology, for their wives. At one time they were held in high esteem and were fruitful in their ministry and then they turned their backs on it all. I know of at least a dozen cases in the last 10 years or so that this actually happened. It also happens in our families. Husband and father or a wife Mother does something unimaginable. You find out that it was not a one-time occurrence, but that he or she led a double life. He or she was caught in adultery or was discovered to be addicted to pornography for a long time or to drugs or alcohol or visited prostitutes or he or she was caught with their hands in the till, defrauding others. Nobody knew. It was a secret for a long time. Unexpectedly, it's out in the open. It's deeply disappointing and upsetting. At times like that, we throw up our hands and cry out to God because of the hurt and the anger and the mixed emotions. How is it possible? What made this person do these things? How could we have been so wrong about him or her? And we wonder, what makes certain people do what they do? Why are they willing to destroy their ministry, the lives of their families, their reputation in the church, and turn their backs on it all? What was it that lures them to destruction? The question, brothers and sisters, that all of us have to face. When something like this happens, we are forced to look at ourselves and ask, could I do something like that? Or my husband? Or my wife? Or one of my children? Or my minister? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, God says that you and I could be tempted to commit the same horrible sin as others. Quite an indictment. Is that really true? 
To answer that question, we have to look at how the tempter does his work. How does Satan tempt man to sin? Also our theme. How Satan tempts man to sin against God. Look at three things. First of all, the temptation. Secondly, the deception. And then finally, the response. The text introduces us to one of God's creatures, the serpent. As one of God's creatures, he is good, very good. At this point, sin had not yet entered the world. And so as such, the serpent was not yet an evil creature. He did not have any wicked qualities either. The fact that he is called crafty or shrewd or cunning, as other translations have it, does not mean that he is devious in an evil sense. No, the word translated as crafty refers to quickness of sight, to swiftness of motion, and to the ability to adapt to every situation. God endowed the serpent with the ability to be flexible and innovative. In fact, he was a delightful creature. But those exceptional qualities of the serpent could be used by a superior intelligence for his own purposes. That's where Satan comes in. He uses the serpent to advance his own agenda, his own evil agenda, and he speaks and acts through him. That, brothers and sisters, is always how Satan works. He uses something which is beautiful and delightful in God's creation as bait to draw us away from God. And that's what he did with the serpent. Let's see how he does that with Eve. But first, let us keep in mind that Eve was also one of God's good creatures. Very good. He created her without sin. At this point, she does not have poisoned blood in her veins like we who were born and conceived in sin do. There is nothing in creation that troubles Eve. She had a perfect start in life. There is nothing lacking in her life, and there is nothing to spoil her happiness. For example, she doesn't know what it is to be lonely or to be full of despair or to experience rejection or famine or disease or hunger. There is no temptation for her to cheat on her husband either. She has the perfect husband and she lives in a beautiful garden. She has everything going for her. That's not the way it is for us, is it? When we sin, we can point to the poor example of others or to the way we were brought up. Or we can blame our miserable circumstances. Not Eve. She lives in a pristine environment. When Jesus Christ was tempted in the wilderness, that was... Different for him as well, totally different. He was tempted in a 
hostile environment. His life was in constant danger. The world was out to destroy him. He suffered physically. He was hungry. And so the temptation for Jesus to sin was much greater. But now Satan comes to Eve in that unspoiled state. So how does he tempt the woman? Well, he uses the same methods that he still uses. His MO, his modus operandi has never changed. And so let's pay careful attention to how he goes about his dirty business. For if he can tempt her, he can certainly tempt you and me. In the first place, he disguises himself. He uses one of God's delightful creatures to do that. In the Garden of Eden, he does not warn Eve of his presence, rattling with his tail like a rattlesnake or hissing like a coiled snake ready to strike. He does not come with a roar of a lion either. There is nothing to suggest that there is danger ahead. That's how he always works. He just slides into your life like a trusted companion. He comes, as it says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, like an angel of light. Please know that he goes to the woman rather than the man. Why? Well, he knows that the command not to eat of the forbidden tree was given to Adam even before even Eve was created. As we know from Genesis 12, verse 15 through 17, God also gave him the task, or Genesis 2, gave him the task to defend and guard the garden. For he had to work it and keep it. He did not give that command to Eve. Oh, sure, Eve was Adam's helper, and together they had to carry out God's plan for creation. Together they had dominion. But her task was distinctly different. She has a different role in creation. She is to be the mother of all living. And now Satan bypasses Adam, who is the authority figure in the garden, And he goes to the one person in all of creation that holds sway over Adam's heart. How often doesn't that happen? Rather than going to the head, to the source, people with evil intent go behind their backs. They look for the weakest link. Children intent on getting their way are very good at that too, aren't they? They know which parent to pick. And so does anyone who has a very definite self-serving agenda. They exploit a person's vulnerability to realize their own ill-conceived goal. How else does Satan tempt us? Well, he gets us focused on one single issue. And in so doing, he elevates it to something to be highly desired. 
as something you can't do without. Look how he does that with Eve. We don't know. He has her concentrate on one piece of fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit that was. Many people think it was an apple. But there is no mention of an apple here. It may well have been a cluster of grapes, because that's the one fruit most often mentioned in the Bible. But the food as such is not important. But what is really striking here is that in spite of all the many delectable fruits available in the garden, he has her think about that one forbidden fruit. She doesn't need it. She doesn't lack anything. There is no desire for her. There is no logical reason for her to desire anything else. Until Satan had her think about that one forbidden fruit, she hadn't really given it much of a thought. But Satan plants a desire for that one particular fruit in her heart by asking her, out of the blue, a question about the forbidden tree in the garden. He does not begin by saying anything about how wonderful it is that God has given her such bounty, that he has given her the use of all the other trees in the garden. He doesn't come with anything positive. Never does. Except if it suits his own evil purposes. No, he focuses on the negative, on the forbidden tree. Isn't that how sin enters our lives? Turn our backs on the good things, all the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, and throw it away for a single sin in our lives. That's what we get focused on. That's what we want. We deserve it, don't we? Everything else then becomes peripheral, unimportant. You know how this happens, brothers and sisters. Well, this happens when we don't live thankful lives. When, for example, we are not satisfied with our marriage partner that God has given us. Or when we are not satisfied with our possessions or with our job. We're jealous of others. I wish I had what my neighbor has. If I had what he or she has, my life would be so much better. As it is right now, it's the doldrums. And that's what happens when you no longer see God's goodness. It's then that we only see what we don't have. And once our focus is shifted, we will do anything to get what we find lacking. And if we don't put a stop to it, it will become an obsession. That's how the first sin started. He has Eve focus on what she does not have. And she fell for a trick. She becomes obsessed with that one fruit. Very cleverly, he draws her in. He does that with the very way he asks the question. 
But look at how she answers him. She answers him by saying that God indeed had said that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, and that neither shall you touch it lest you die. Is that really what God said? No. He said in Genesis 2 verse 16 that she and Adam may surely eat of every tree. She leaves that little word surely out. Actually, it says, as other translations have it, that they may freely eat of every tree in the garden. They have to have freedom to do whatever they want with all the trees in the garden except just this one. Not in order to withhold anything from them, but to test them. And did God also say that they were not even allowed to touch the tree? No. She adds that in order to make God to be more restrictive than he is. She exaggerates the command. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's also what the Pharisees did. And that's what all legalists do. They pretend to be more zealous for God's command than he really is. And in this way, they set themselves up for failure. But now Satan has her where he wants her. She has taken the bait and is ready to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. The temptation is in full swing. Second point. Watch him at work. First of all, he disguises his purposes. Of course, he does not whisper in her ear that he's there to tempt her. He doesn't come bearing his teeth either, making all kinds of noise. No, he just wants to have a theological discussion with her. He wants to make sure that she understood God correctly. All he wants from her is some clarification. Do you really think that God meant exactly what he said? Did you interpret that correctly? Are you sure of your exegesis? Do you really think that he would deny you the pleasure of that one tree? That doesn't sound like him, does it, Eve? He is the God of love, isn't he? And he wants you to enjoy his whole creation, doesn't he? Brothers and sisters, that's also how the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Do you really think that your Father in heaven wants you to go hungry? Of course not. Why don't you just command these stones to become bread? You can do it. That's how Satan works today as well. Satan whispers in your ear, do you really think it's such a big deal that you take something from your employer once in a while? After all, you deserve it, don't you? God doesn't want you to be lacking anything. He doesn't want you to go hungry. He doesn't want you to have less than other people. Go ahead. God will understand. He's a merciful God. And what's wrong with a little sex outside of marriage? Feels so good. Does God really want to deny you that pleasure? 
Did he not give you the beautiful gift of sex to enjoy? You deserve it. You've got to spice up your life a little bit. Get some excitement in your life. Not such a great sin either, is it, to click on that pretty girl in front of you on a computer screen or on your device, is it? You're not really cheating on your wife when you do that. You're just looking. What's the big deal? You know what that leads to, don't you? You will want more. Never enough. It leads to what we see in the world today. There are no more any barriers. People think that they should be able to do whatever they want. There should be no restrictions. They should have no hang-ups. You're free. Really? But what happens? In reality, you become enslaved to sin. Whatever that sin is holds you in its grip. And it becomes very hard to extricate yourself. Satan then has you where he wants you. He has you focus on the sinful flesh and how to satisfy your desires. One of the big things in the world nowadays is follow your heart. Also the psychologists with degrees behind their names They will tell you that. Follow your heart. Well, the heart is deceitful. And when you give in to your desires, little by little, you die. Your life becomes empty. Listen to what God says in James 1, verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. But then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death. Satan pretends to know about death, too. And that's another way that he fools us and tempts us. He attacks God's word. Oh, sure, he's very subtle and Subtle and nuanced about it. But listen to what he says to Eve. After Eve told him that God had said that they would die if they eat from the tree, he tells her, well, you will not surely die. Yeah, he's right. But only half right, and that makes it a lie. For what does he do? He twists God's word. Look how he did that with the Lord Jesus. When he tells Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, he quotes from Psalm 91, verse 11, namely that God will command his angels concerning him and to guard him. But he leaves out a little phrase in all your ways. He will guide you and protect you in all your ways. That's the complete sentence. In other words, God will only keep his promises if you walk in his ways. But not if you don't. And therefore Jesus says to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan is dishonest about what God says in his word. 
is also dishonest with Eve about what God says about death. We all know what physical death is. You die when your heart is no longer beating and your total brain is no longer functioning and you're breathing no longer. In that sense, Satan was right. When Eve and Adam took a bite from the fruit, they didn't drop dead right at that moment. But what does the Bible say about death? On a much deeper level, death is to be abandoned by God. According to the Bible, you experience true life only in God's presence. And that is why it was so important for the Israelites to go to the temple, to the sanctuary. That is where you receive the forgiveness of sins and where you are restored to a relationship with God. If you were kept from the temple, you were in mourning. That's the way it was, for example, for lepers. Until they were cleansed of their leprosy, which might not happen until after they die a physical death, they were not allowed to come into God's presence in the temple. They could not go into the sanctuary. They had to behave like mourners, with their clothes torn and their hair disheveled and, and cry out, unclean, unclean. In that sense, Adam and Eve died on the day that they ate from that forbidden tree. After that, they were no longer allowed to come in God's presence. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden. They could no longer have conversations with God and enjoy his bountiful provision and eat of the tree of life. Brothers and sisters, and that's the way it is for you and for me and for everyone. Because of our sins, we're dead. That's why he gave us his son to defeat the devil. And we can share in that victory over sin and evil only if you also admit your sins, if you repent, not just once, but if you do that daily. If not, you will remain in your sins and you will be dead to God forever. If you don't repent, God will abandon us. That's a horrible prospect. But Satan doesn't say anything about that, does he? He doesn't warn them. That's because he's not interested in the truth. His only interest is in having you and me away from God. From his love and care. Be wise to the devil. In order to accomplish that, he is not in order to accomplish that, he not only attacks God's word, but he also attacks God's character. He intimates that God has ulterior motives. He says. God does not want you to be like him, and for that reason he does not want you to eat of that tree. But Eve, that's not really what's going on. Actually, he wants to keep everything for himself. He does not want to share his knowledge and the power that comes with it. God wants to keep you down. He wants to forbid you the excitement that life offers in its fullness. He doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. For once you know all that, then you will enjoy experiences 
beyond your wildest dreams. God has an ulterior motive, a hidden agenda, and it's an evil one. Brothers and sisters, once the well is poisoned, all the water is polluted. It's one of the most wicked tricks of the devil. He uses the same trick all the time, also today. Shrewd politicians are very good at it. They can't defeat their political opponents' ideas, then they will attack their character. Suppose somebody had done that with Ruth and Naomi. Someone whispers in Ruth's ears that Naomi is out to exploit her, that she wants her to come back with her from Moab to Bethlehem for her own selfish purposes. They whisper in Ruth's ear, Naomi, all she wants is to get her property back. And she wants to use you for that purpose. She's a manipulator and only has her own interests at heart. Don't fall for it. Can you imagine how hard it would have been for Ruth to do the right thing? How that would have planted doubt in her heart? That's how the devil works. Satan speaks to us in the same way. Because of our sin and our sinful conditions, we carry our doubts and suspicions with us. When something painful happens in our lives, we ask, why? Don't you love me? But it's like a dagger pointed at God's heart. Oh, Lord, how can you let this happen to me of all people? Why me and not somebody else? Don't your covenant promises mean anything to you? And once you go down that road, brothers and sisters, then you doubt God's goodness. And ultimately, then you question God's character. The next thing you will do is to doubt God's word. And if you don't believe that God is there for you always, no matter what, and that he cares about you, then the work of the tempter is complete. You have placed yourself outside of God's sphere of influence, outside of his income, outside of his kingdom. But Satan wants to keep that eventuality hidden from you. He never tells you the truth. He keeps you in the dark about the consequences of disobedience against God. But if there's anybody that should know about that consequence, it is he. For he was thrown out of heaven because of his disobedience. His fate is sealed, and he knows it. As it says in Revelation 20, verse 10, he will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the devil wants us to share his fate. Be watchful. So how do we protect ourselves? How do we respond? Third point. Well, note how Jesus defeats Satan. What does he do? He used the power of the word of God. He quotes the Bible. He says, it is written. Very simple. Yet, quite profound. Brothers and sisters, if you want to protect yourself from evil, then you go to God's word. All of it. Don't take it out of context, as the devil does. Be faithful to the word of God. 
let God speak to you. Not your sinful flesh, not your own desire, so that you twist God's word to suit you. And that takes knowledge, of course, indeed. You must know why you believe and what. But don't think that when the Bible speaks about knowledge, that that means being able to quote the scriptures backwards and frontwards. Of course, you have to know the scriptures. But it means ultimately to have intimate knowledge of God and of his ways. It is the kind of knowledge that you have about your wife or your husband to whom you have been married for a long time. You have gone through many things together and you have learned to trust and to depend on each other. You know how your partner is going to react in certain situations. That's the kind of knowledge you must have about God. Who is our perfect covenant partner. Who always reacts in the right way. With compassion and understanding and patience. To know God is to know what it means to live close to him. Every day. You call upon him. And you talk to him. And you pour out your heart to him when you are in trouble. You give him thanks also for the many things with which he provides you. And you want to please him because you know he loves you. To know him means to trust him. To depend on him for everything. To trust his character. To trust his goodness and his love for you. When God created Adam and Eve, he made a covenant with them. And he made promises. He gave man and woman the highest place in all of creation. He gave them a place of honor. And he gave them the ability to be in a relationship with him and with each other. The fall into sin ultimately did not change that. He still loves you. Even though you fall into sin, even into some terrible sin, and even if you live in it for a while, he still loves you. As long as you go back to him. As long as you humble yourself before him. As long as you acknowledge that he is the God of love. And that he does not want to deny you any good thing. He wants you and me to be near him. And for that reason you have to listen to him. And not to the devil. James says in chapter 4 verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yet... How often do you and I not fall for the tricks of Satan? Every day, in one way or the other, he has us do things against God and his word. And that's why we need to get on our knees and ask for forgiveness every day. We need God to restore us, to renew us. And that's an ongoing activity. We need God's help in order to survive. Listen to what God says in Hebrews 2. 16 through 18, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, you and me. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, Jesus paid quite a price for the Father to be able to love us. He was obedient even in the most horrible circumstances. He obeyed his Father in heaven during the most difficult and trying times. And he never gave up. You may not give up either. If there is some sin that has you in its grip, run for help to Jesus and repent. Brothers and sisters, we are all prone to fall into some of the most horrible sins. As I said in the beginning when I quoted from 1 Corinthians, there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. So let's be humble before God and before our fellow man. Let's not judge others too easily. We're all sinners in need of redemption. And only God can redeem us because in ourselves we are so weak. It's also what we confess in Lord's Day 52, namely that we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot even stand for a moment. The devil, our sworn enemy, does not cease to attack us. You and I, we're Christians. We belong to Jesus Christ, who won the victory for us over evil and over sin, and he withstood the temptations. And if we belong to him, we can do that too. In him, Satan cannot claim us as long as you go to him time and again for forgiveness, for renewal, for strength and wisdom, for the gift of life. And then he will grant it to you, eternal life even. And so don't listen to the devil. Listen to God, always. Amen.